0: Thanks for listening to the Voice Church podcast. We are a new life-giving multi-ethnic church located in Orange County, California. We meet every Sunday at 10:30 a.m. in Tustin. For more information, check out our social media or our website at www.voice.church. And now, let's tune in to this week's message. I would always like to try for a Christmas activity, and I've never done. You guys ever heard, you remember those songs, We Wish You a Merry Christmas, and they're talking about eating figgy pudding? You guys know what I'm talking about? Has anyone actually ever eaten figgy pudding before? Oh, my gosh, you have? I've never actually met anyone before who's had it. So I'm like, I actually want to try figgy pudding one day. This is, like, ever since I was a little kid, I'm, like, imagining that this is some fantastic treat. But I looked up the ingredients the other day, and I was like, Actually, I don't know if that's going to be very good at all, actually. So we'll see. I might try it this year. We're going to see. I think I'm going to try making figgy pudding. But that's one of my favorite things to do with my family is, like, make cookies and just bake together. It's one of my favorite things. I got to go back and see my sisters last week. And there was actually snow in Wisconsin, and so it was really beautiful. It felt like I was in a little Christmas carol. It was really lovely. So, yeah, it was really sweet. We got to bake cookies, and so it was like my Christmas wishes Came true with my sisters. So, um, yeah, we've actually been in a series. Speaking of Christmas carols, we've been in a series where we're talking about um, some of the different Christmas carols, not the ones like um, that are like about Santa Claus and stuff like that. Uh, we've been talking about ones that are tied into scripture, and so uh, they, we have really not talked very often about where some of these carols came from and why we sing them. And actually, when we were started looking into it, there's like a lot of really cool meaning and significance behind a lot of these carols. And so uh, we've been we've been talking about a few of them, and this week I actually wanted to focus on the one called A Little Town of Bethlehem. Do you guys know that one? A Little Town of Bethlehem. Don't make me sing it, please. You guys say yes. Please tell me you know it. Okay. Because it's not going to be good for anybody if I sing that song. <laughs> But this this actually has a lot of really cool meaning behind it. And I actually didn't know until we started researching, but this song was actually created in 1868 by Reverend Phillips Brooks. And there's a lot of themes of peace and calm in this song because they had actually just gotten through um, the Civil War. And he was actually a very outspoken uh, proponent For ending slavery, and he ministered quite a bit to the African American troops. And he also um, actually gave the eulogy at Abraham Lincoln's funeral. And uh, he was, because this was just something that he knew that he had to advocate for. And so um, Abraham Lincoln obviously saw him as a really important figure, and, and that's why he was able to do the eulogy. But not surprisingly, he was really tired after all of that. And so he took a year's sabbatical. And he went to go visit the Holy Land in that time. And when he was there, that's when he got the inspiration to write this song, A Little Town of Bethlehem, because he had seen it in first person. And he he was inspired by this little town and the significance and the meaning behind it. And so he actually created this song to sing it to a children's Sunday school class at his church. And he thought that he would just sing with with them for one Sunday, and then that would be it, he thought. We'll never probably sing this song again. But there happened to be another pastor there who was in the little children's service with them and loved it so much that he said, I'm going to take it to my church. And then more people kept hearing it, and more people kept hearing it, and eventually it became this globally known song, A Little Town of Bethlehem. And I chose this because the lyrics are really powerful, but even as a children's song, it even shocked the writer that something so simple would become so globally impactful. And so, like I said, Brooks' visit to the Holy Land really opened his eyes to see the significance of even just this small, overlooked, little, tiny town that's detailed in, this, in the Christmas story in Luke 2. Namely, like I said, the town of Bethlehem. And so I think that I've said this before, and I really mean it. God is so specific In the tiny little details that he puts in scripture, not just the tiny little details in the words, but the actual places and the people that he uses. And he so often chooses really simple people and simple places to make the most significant impacts. And so this song just, the song itself was like, almost like foreshadowing. Actually, no, the story was like foreshadowing this song. Right, because the song came after. Anyways, you guys get what I'm saying, right? You guys got me. Okay, so anyways, I thought we would start off just by going through some of the verses. We're not going to do the whole thing today. I, I really encourage you to listen to the whole thing because there's even more. It's like, I'm like, wow, this guy was like teaching theology to little kids. Like, he was going for it with this song. But we're going to just start <clears throat> with the first four of them, the first, first few of them. So in the very beginning, he's, it says, Oh little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above a deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. And of course, like I said, he was referencing the little town of Bethlehem in Luke 2. And by all accounts, it really was really a relatively normal, relatively quiet night. Nothing seemingly out of place. There was a little bit going on because there was a lot of people there visiting their homelands because they were doing a census. So there was a little bit more people, but overall, nothing too major happening, pretty quiet. It was this tiny little place. It was only about two to 3,000 people. Um, now, there's about 25,000 people, which is still really small when you think about it. The size of Tustin, there's 80,000 people. Irvine, Santa Ana, there's 300,000 people. So it's like a, a neighborhood, right? <laughs> a neighborhood within one of our cities. And so it was just this little tiny town, this simple little farm town, <clears throat> and The roaming hills, sorry guys, the roaming hills were actually like really ideal for different kinds of farming, two different kinds of farming. So the first one would be uh, for grains. So they had a lot of barley and a lot of wheat. They were perfectly situated for that. And because of that, they were perfectly situated for uh, sheep. And so we actually see in this time, you guys know the story, that there were shepherds on that field. But also what I love about this, what, there's so many details, even in just the name, because as I said, it was um, full of barley and wheat. <clears throat> and when you translate the, the name of Bethlehem, it actually means the bread house. Interesting, right? The thing that's really cool about that is that Jesus would later call himself the bread of life. The bread of life. You see what I mean? God is so detailed. With every little tiny thing that he does. And every little tiny thing that he says. And so this little town, again, it's the bread house, is located in Palestine. And you and I know that right now it's a really contentious place to be. There's a lot a lot going on there. And it's there's been a lot going on in Palestine for thousands of years. It's been a very contentious place. And... Um, Obviously, there's been wars and wars and wars, but somehow this little town has been protected for generations. It's, it's stayed intact. Yes, there's been times where there's people going in and out, things pillaged here and there, but overall, the most holy sites are still protected there. And actually, uh, government leaders from many countries and faiths have worked together to preserve this town because of the historical significance for their own genealogy. And today, it's really mostly known... Not so much for the the hills and for all that. It's known for these holy sites. And it's history that goes back um, 5,000 years. And actually, we we read about them in scripture. And I actually didn't even think about it until I started really looking into the significance of Bethlehem and what has happened in Bethlehem in the past. So the first mention that we know of Bethlehem is when Jacob meets Rachel, who he falls in love with. Do you guys know this story? Jacob is one of the patriarchs of the Jewish faith. He's one of the first uh, patriarchs that God makes a promise that he's going to use their family to make a difference in the world. He's going to do great things through their family, and that's where they met, and that's where they—that's what their heritage was. And so, uh, not only that, but uh, she's Rachel is venerated as a matriarch to many nations because so many different nations were built from her children. And so, actually, she was buried there in her homeland, and her tomb is still there today. And it's actually there's a monument built around her tomb, so five thousand year old tomb you can still find there in Bethlehem. Not only that, but you guys um, remember the book of Ruth. There's a story about Ruth and Boaz, and that's where Ruth and Boaz would meet, on those same hills, those same hills where she was very poor. She was a foreigner. She came in, and she would glean the edges of the fields, edges of his fields. And she would. he would allow her to have extra wheat so she could take care of her mother-in-law. And so this is an incredible story that speaks of two relatively... Simple people who were very humbled and they honored and protected their family members. And they weren't necessarily even bound to those family members, but their just generosity and their faithfulness was extreme. And so they were honored in scripture for that. But not only that, they were the ancestors to another great figure in history who we know was a shepherd in those fields. Do you know who that would be? Anyone? His name is King David. And we are introduced to David when he was just a shepherd boy on those fields, tending the flocks on those fields. And it's pretty amazing the history that has come out of that. He would become great King David, known as the man after God's own heart. And I think what's so interesting about the shepherd analogy, the shepherd, the way God uses the word shepherd and the way he talks about Jesus as a shepherd is also very interesting. Very key. It's su- super important. and But the funny thing about it is that it's one of the least prestigious jobs. It's the dirtiest one. It's the most grueling one. It's the one that's behind the scenes. Usually the other members of the family are doing like the more, you know, sought after things like running the business side or preparing it or grinding the wheat or the wool and making bread with it or making socks. I don't know, whatever they made with wool back then, right? They were doing other things that maybe were more um, desirable. But the shepherd was always given to the youngest one. And that's why it was given to Rachel. She was tending her father's flocks. She was the younger one. She was the younger sister. And that's why it was given to David. He was the youngest one, right? And so they kind of got the shaft. They had to do all the hard work, the dirty work. And so each of these people really were kind of on the lower rung, of society, right? They were very simple and very unassuming, but their stories have lasted from generation to generation. And from the outside, nothing would really suggest to us that there was anything really special about them um, or that they did anything really great, that they would be included in God's story for thousands of years on these tiny little hills on this little farming town. There's nothing that says anything special about those. Except that these these people, these relatively simple people, lived out these extremely faithful lives. And I think sometimes in the U.S., people kind of see these stories as like, like uh, fairy tales or like legends. But really, they're actual places, and you can go and you can visit them today. And I was actually like excited to learn that the place where Jesus was born is considered a UNESCO World Heritage Site. So it's really protected by many nations. Um, and you can go and visit it. And I was really surprised to learn that he was actually born in a cave. How many of you thought that Jesus was born in a little barn with like a stick stick thing? And you saw a little manger that was like made out of wood, right? It wasn't. It was, more, it was a lot more like this, if you can see the cave. Um, and inside those little holes, those little openings, that is what a manger is. Now, I did not know that, and i kind of embarrassed that I didn't know that. <laughs> but it was really, it was inside of these little caves. And these caves were kind of built into the sides of the hills, and this is where the shepherds would kind of like look out for their sheep there. Um, but the cave that Jesus was born inside, it was, like I said, it's been so preserved that it has a church They've been they've built over top of it, so that no one could destroy it. And so it's called the Church of the Nativity. You can see it right there. Um, that little door goes right into the main room where you can go in there, and you can still go in, and you can see the place where Mary gave birth. And they actually have a little star around the rock. So I think it's coming up here. It's like a little star. Like inside of that star is apparently the rock, the stone, where Mary gave birth to Jesus. Now, props to Mary, because she gave birth in a cave on, on a stone, and I would not be very happy about that. I'm just saying, like, way to go, girl, because ow. But um, that is where she had Jesus. And so when they made their way into this tiny little town, they, they came by the way of the patriarchs, and this was kind of a widely traveled highway, and Bethlehem was just this little tiny dirt path that you could take to get to this little town. And so you can kind of see in the photo um, that's coming up next what it would look like to be in one of these fields and what these little watchtowers looked like. So these are kind of the little places where, like, they they would go in and hide. They would keep their sheep in there. Sometimes they would keep watch from inside these little watchtowers. And so what strikes me the most when I see all of this is, like, really unassuming. It's really, really unassuming. And... I just continue to see the way that God uses really simple people in simple places, no glory, no no grandeur, no titles, not even privacy, because we know that it was crowded, right? So Mary and Joseph, they didn't have anywhere to go, so they ended up going to give birth in in this little cave, and probably, honestly, um, they were kind of probably shoved over there, because we know that everyone's family was there. Um, Everyone was with their relatives. And Joseph and Mary were these extremely faithful people who said yes to God, even when it was kind of embarrassing for them, to be honest. Because, like I said, Mary was this teenage girl who, you know, tells her fiancé, hey, God got me pregnant. And he's like, okay, right, sure. But he chooses to raise a child that's not his own. And he chooses to bring his pregnant wife, well, not even wife yet. They're still engaged. He chooses to bring her to his family. Now, if you can imagine this, this was really probably a little embarrassing for them because actually you could be stoned for this kind of thing back then. You could be stoned for having a child out of wedlock. You could be stoned for sleep, sleeping with someone who was not your, your spouse or family member. Well, not family member, spouse. <laughs> so who's was not your spouse. Okay. Be stoned for that, and so it was actually kind of dangerous. He brought her to his family, but his family, luckily, his family took them in, took care of them, and but put them in the side room where all the animals were. I, I don't have any proof, but I think they were kind of like, We're kind of annoyed with you guys, we're gonna have to look after you guys. You should be getting in trouble for this, but you're gonna be over there. You're gonna go into the cave. so usually ca- the caves where they had these um, oh my gosh where they had where they had the animals at um, that is usually attached to the house or just across from the house. So the place that they stayed was likely their family's like area where they kept the animals and it was the overflow room. They were probably honestly um, kind of shoved out there but there was no privacy for them because their whole family was around. And that brings me to the next verse, which says, For Christ is born of Mary and gathered all above. Where mortals sleep, the angels keep their watch of wondering love. So Mary and Joseph, like I said, they were very simple people, but they were extremely faithful. And they bravely said yes to God, even when it meant that they were going to be misunderstood, especially by their family. But Joseph decided to stay with Mary when she was already Pregnant, even though he had every right to walk away. And so, honestly, God could have chosen anyone to do this. And if I was going to choose someone, I probably would have chosen someone who maybe was a little more known in the world. My mind would be like, oh, why didn't you choose a king or a queen? Why didn't you have the savior of the world, the son of God, be born in a palace? Why did you have him born? in the same place that the animals are fed, that the animals sleep. Why would you have this happen? Well, I have, I have a hunch, and like I said, just like I think the family pushed them off to the, the spare room, I think I also have a hunch. Now, don't hold me to this, because one day we'll find out, okay? We'll find out. God will tell us all of his secrets. But I have this hunch that God didn't want to do that because he knew that a king would not be very receptive to another king being born, coming to take his place, right? Can you imagine being a king and someone being like, oh, yeah, God's going to send the king to be born, and he's going to take your place, and them being totally cool with it? Probably not. And actually, we know that the king at this time, Herod, was not cool with that. He killed many of his family members who he, even if he just, like, had an inkling that they might try to be, like, take his place, he would kill them. And he also, when he found out that Jesus was being born, he would, kill, he would go on to kill all of the male babies in that entire area, age two and under. So you think about it, Jesus was probably the only male his age from there. So would, that's just a side note. But So we know that Herod was not going to be cool with that. And so I think God was really specific, and he's like, I'm going to have this baby be born to these really simple people that nobody knows about, Nobody hears about, and I'm going to put him in this quiet little place where the king's not going to be able to get to him right away because it's going to take a minute to figure it out. I think that's why God did that, because he was protecting him. He was looking out for him. I think God chooses people in places that won't be tempted to steal his credit. He chooses people in places that aren't going to steal his glory or his authority. But a king might do that, right? Right? so he chooses simple people that he knows are going to point back to him every time. He chooses people who won't possibly have the reputation, the power, or the status to do things that God called them to do on their own. He chose them because they weren't captivated by success or popularity. They were simply captivated by him, and they were willing to suffer so that other people could know that love. These were the exact kind of people that he would need to raise his son because his son would go on to have the same kind of life. He would live and suffer for us. And so he chose two perfect people to be the parents of the Savior of the world, humble people who were willing to sacrifice. Mary, of all people, like I said, she was a teenager, and she was willing to endure the pain and humiliation what she went through, but of nursing a baby, having sleepless nights, and all the new moms said amen because that is painful. (laughs) That is so tiring. But she would endure his terrible two tantrums and chasing him around as a little boy, getting lost in the temples like so many of us moms have lost our kids in the clothing racks at the stores and in the toy aisles. We know that pain, right? She would go through that. She survived his teen years, and finally she was with him, almost every single time that he had done a miracle. She went with him. She was actually, she might have been a smother. I'm just saying. You guys know what a smother is? A mother that smothers? Yeah, I think Mary might have been a smother. But, you know, it's okay because she got to be present for some of the most incredible moments in history. So she was there with him when he did his very first miracle, right? Actually, she kind of encouraged it. She was there through every single moment of his life, even all the way up until he was killed. And even after he was killed, she stayed and she helped clean the body. And she was there when he rose, and she was there afterwards, training the women and sending them out as disciples. She was there helping fulfill the mission of his life even after he died. That is one devoted mom That is someone who is willing to suffer for the good of others. That is someone who is willing to take their pain and turn that into purpose. And that's what Mary did. So her her sacrifice as a mother is the perfect example of the selfless selfless kind of bravery that God was looking for. You don't have to be great to be part of his story. You just have to be brave enough to say yes, even when you might look silly or misunderstood. And you have to be tough enough to not quit when it gets really hard and when things look really dark and really bleak. And sometimes it's really hard to do that, right? It's really hard to do what society says is kind of the opposite of normal, right? It's really hard to turn the cheek, turn the other cheek when someone has betrayed you. It's really hard to pray for your enemies, isn't it? <laughs> it's really hard to keep your mind and your heart pure when we have every opportunity to look at and read and see all kinds of things that tell us the opposite of what God's way of life is. It's really hard to sometimes be faithful to people in our life who haven't been faithful to us. And sometimes it's even really hard to believe God when you don't see anything happening. It's really hard to sometimes have that faith, but God doesn't work the way that we work. And I can imagine that Mary probably really often was wondering why God would let her son live such a short life such a short and really painful life. But the thing is that God does not work on our timeline. And that comes to the next verse. It says, yet in the dark streets shineth the everlasting light, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And not only does God work in unexpected places and unexpected people, he works on unexpected timelines. And the reason I read that verse is because it was in this one moment It was the breakthrough, the fears and the tears of all the years are met in this one moment, this one little baby being born. It took 5,000 years to get to that point. And even still, it was 33 more years until the promise would be fulfilled. 33 more years. And so God's promise to humanity was just only beginning to be fulfilled in that moment. And again, so many times I wonder, I'm like, why didn't God just snap his fingers and just be like, it's done, it's finished, right? But he doesn't work the way we work. He doesn't do things on our timeline. He doesn't do things the way we would do them. He keeps his promises, but to keep those promises, he refuses to change his character, which means he continues to give us choices. And we continue to mess things up, right? We get in our own way sometimes. And we stall things that God's trying to do because we're not obeying him. But he, he's always working and finding new ways to make sure that his promises are fulfilled to us. And so often this is how God works. One situation at a time. One day at a time. He's not in a hurry because he's trying to make, sh- make sure that everything is perfect. And good things take time. Anyone who is like a COVID sourbread, bread dough Baker figured this out, right? How many of you became sourdough bakers during COVID? None of you. Okay, well, never mind then. Um, sourdough takes a really long time, right? It takes at least seven days just to get that yeast ready, and then you gotta let, and then you gotta make the dough, and then you gotta let it rise, and then you gotta punch it down, and then you gotta make it rise again. You gotta. There's a huge process that's involved in it, but sourdough is so much better than that. Store-bought bread that you can make in like ten minutes, right? That quick process bread that's kind of like just all just soft and sticky. But then when you eat sourdough, it's like that perfect crunch on the outside. And it's soft on the inside, and it's got all these vitamins and minerals. And it's even people who have gluten allergies can eat it. It's like the perfect thing, right? But it takes so much longer to make it, and that's what God is like in our life. He uses all these different processes. Things take time to perfect. Good things take really long time sometimes. And he knows that great stories happen out of pain and growth and redemption and hard work. Great stories don't happen, just snap the fingers and it's over. Right? Things take time. God knew that there was a story to unfold and prophecies to be filled in the life of Jesus. He knew that there were moments that needed to happen to get to that but no waiting is ever for nothing. And that sounds really good on paper, sounds really good, like as a little snapshot for me to put up on the screen. But anyone who's been praying for a child or a spouse for many years knows that that is not easy to live by. Anyone who's had a family member who's suffering with illness knows that that is not easy to live by or understand. Anyone who's had, um, been waiting for a spouse for a long time and you're getting older and you're like, I, I don't know if it's ever going to happen for me. You know that pain. The person who's been looking for a job and feels like God forgot about them, you know the pain of waiting. You know the delay, don't you? You know it. But the thing is that God is not like us. He doesn't do quick fixes. He's not in a hurry. When he gives you a promise be prepared for him to take you through a process. I know that's not what you want to hear today. But when he gives you a promise, be prepared to go through a process. But it's, you can know and you can be sure that it's going to be for your good. Whatever the outcome, it's going to be for your good. And it doesn't always feel good. and It doesn't always make sense in the moment. But it's going to be greater than you can ever imagine. And you can trust that his processes have a purpose. So again, God does not work on our timeline because God needs us to see that human, again, humans couldn't possibly have knit together the pieces of this story so perfectly. He needs us to see and understand that he was the one who made this happen. This had to be something that had to be done in a supernatural way, and so the last phrase for of this verse that we're gonna of this song we're gonna go over is this next one that I think ties together what I'm talking about, and it says, "O morning stars together, proclaim Thy holy birth, and praises sing to God the King, and peace to men on earth." And so, before any of these people or these places were even in existence, God set the stars in place you ever heard the verse in Psalms, uh, I think it's 91, Psalm 91 that says, the heavens declare his glory. That was intentional. That wasn't just a nice phrase. That was real. He was purposeful in putting that in scripture. In Genesis 1, 14, it says, then God said, let lights appear in the sky and separate the day from night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons and the days and the years. We see also in the book of Job that Job talks about the constellations in the sky and how they have meaning and they help people tell time and they help people tell different events that were happening. They marked events and days and years and seasons. Even the stars in the sky proclaim God's glory. And this is pretty crazy. If you want to nerd out about astronomy, I don't know how many of you guys like astronomy or science, but I love learning about this stuff. If you want to nerd out about astronomy and God's creation of the stars and how it relates to the Jewish calendar, check out the work of an Old Testament scholar. His name is Dr. Michael Heiser, and I spent some time this week reading through and listening to some of his um, descriptions of astronomy, how the stars work together to actually proclaim Jesus' birth. And this is the crazy thing about it, um, is that according to him, you can trace the exact time and location and signs that would point to Jesus' exact date of birth, that would pronounce a new and divine king, one who would create a new order on the Jewish observance of what is called Tishri One. Now, it's way too much to go into, um, and I don't even really have my head fully wrapped into about it, but Tishri One begins during Rosh Hashanah, and it's also called the Day of Trumpets. And so... This is a very important and significant day because it symbolizes the beginning of a new creation. Tishri 1, it's the beginning of a new creation. This was the same day that if you, uh, if you go by the Jewish calendar that God would have created Adam and Eve. The same day was Tishri 1. And as you all, well, you may or may not know, Jesus was called the new Adam He would be the new Adam to come and and bring a new creation to us, right? We'd be a new creation in Jesus. There are other several really major biblical events that happened on Tishri 1, such as the Exodus, the first day that Noah walked on land after the flood, and the inaugurations of kings, such as Solomon, Jeremiah, and Ezra. So the day of trumpets also symbolized kingship, Tishri 1. So The scholars of the day, people who studied the skies, people who studied the stars, would have known, they would have seen the signs in the sky that would point to Jesus' birth. And they would be able to tell them by different constellations coming into order at the correct moment, such as Virgo, which is what? Do you know what Virgo means? Virgin. Leo, which is lion, lion of Judah. There's so many cool little details about this. There's there's even more. The constellations would align at exactly the right time and place to proclaim Jesus' birth. Because God doesn't do anything that we could figure out or put together on our own, He does it in a supernatural way. He does it so that it's written in the stars. It was written in the stars, it was miraculous. And so if you take anything away from today, I just pray that you take away that God is the God of the unassuming, the unexpected, and the unexplainable. He's unexplainable. Only by him can these things be done. You don't have to be famous. You don't have to be successful. You don't even have to be anything particularly special to be part of Jesus' story. You just need to be extremely faithful and willing to obey him. I also hope that you take away that God is always on time. You may feel like God has forgotten about you. You may feel like he doesn't see what's going on or that maybe even feel like his promises can't even be fulfilled in the time that you have left. But I can tell you that God is never late. He's never early, but he's never late. He's always right on time. And you can trust him with your timeline. I want you to know that God is still in control, working in miracles, large and small. It may not be all at once, but it might be a million little miracles day by day, minute by minute, but he's piecing together every single little detail in your life in a way that you could never imagine or orchestrate yourself. And how many know that to be true? When you give your life to Jesus and when you fully submit to him, he pieces your life together in ways that you could not plan. And when you try to, it fails. We know this, but when we give it to him, it comes out better than we could ever ask or imagine. It's supernatural, it's miraculous. It's unexpected, it's unexplainable. God is looking for people who are brave enough and willing to do what it takes to be part of his story. People who aren't gonna flake out on their character in exchange for a quick fix. People who are gonna be committed at all, ca- all costs and remain faithful to him, even when it doesn't make sense, even when it's really hard, even when it looks better on paper. He's looking for people that are gonna stay faithful. And he's also looking for the people who have not yet joined him. He's looking for the ones that he did all of this for. He didn't do it just for a cool story or to show that he's a really cool God. He did it because he wants to know you. He wants to be in your life. He wants to do miraculous things in and through you. And he loves you so much more than you could ever even imagine. And so today I just pray that you walk away going, if that's me, if that's you and you're going, I need to recommit myself. You may have been a Christian your whole life or 10 weeks or three months or however long, but you may have been going, I have flaked when it wasn't easy. I have been trusting him with my timeline. I've been trying to do things on my own. And you need to recommit today. You need to say, God, I'm just gonna put it back in your hands. I don't get it. I don't know why it's taking so long. I don't feel very special. I feel like there's nothing amazing about me. And God says, I got you. I made you. I know your story before you even knew it. And I'm working it together for you. And for those of you who have not yet met Jesus, this is a wonderful day to do it. It's a wonderful day to do it. And you can be sure that he loves you and he's gonna be with you going forward. And so as we enter into worship, I'm just gonna pray for us, but... um, Would you just take this moment and just say to God whatever you need to say because there was a lot in all of that. Um, So let's just pray. God, I just thank you for each and every person who came today. I thank you that you see them, you see their life. You see the details that they can't even imagine and you're there with them in the midst of it. And so I pray, Lord, would you speak to every person as we worship, would you speak right to their heart what it is they're needing to hear from you. God, we give you this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's message at Voice Church. We hope it inspired you to live a life more faithfully for Jesus and to be a voice of hope for your community. We'd love for you to join us in person on a Sunday. And until then, we hope you have a beautiful week.